Let's open our Bibles to where Paul was reading earlier, Isaiah chapter 40. We're in the third division, beginning with chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah. I have entitled this message this morning, The Greatest Man Who Ever Lived. And I can say so because the Lord called him that himself. It's a prophecy. You cannot read the Bible through with dealing with prophecy on a chapter-by-chapter basis. When we went through these chapters 40 through 42 on Wednesday night, it was simply one prophecy after another, after another, after another. And what we're looking at this morning is a prophecy concerning the greatest man who ever lived. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out for her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. And the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway to our God. That is our text this morning. As we look at chapter 40, it brings us to the final major division of the book of Isaiah. It is in sharp contrast between the first and last sections of this book. The first section was a revelation of the sovereignty of the Lord upon the throne. But this final section that we're looking at is, reveals the Savior, especially in Isaiah chapter 53, and the place of his suffering. In this section of Isaiah, the thunders and the lightnings that took place on Sinai and are subdued, so to speak, by the wonderful message of grace which comes from God. So in a nutshell, we dealt with a lot of the judgments because they had turned away from the Lord, and yet... We see God's grace beginning with chapter 40 till we get to uh, chapter 66. Isaiah here foretells the coming of John the Baptist. Now on Wednesday we were in chapter 41. I'm just going to have, have you turn the page to that and draw your attention to verses 21 and 23. And the Lord is, is speaking through Isaiah, talking about the utter futility and senselessness of a man making an image, covering it with gold, and then worshiping it. And he's going to contrast it with his own glory, but then he points out something particular about and different from the Bible, and there is only one God, and why this God is different, and what he does. And in verse 41 it says, Present your case, says the Lord, and bring forth strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things that that were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things yet to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Now the implication is this whole book is about that. And here the Lord himself is using the idea of prophecy to prove that there is no God like God. Now, it's only reasonable logic to conclude, that is, if your heart is honest with yourself, that this book is a very word of God because of prophecy. This morning, we will look at just one of them, and that is the foretelling of the forerunner to the Lord Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. I thought about it, how do you deal with the man who Jesus says was the greatest man who ever lived. As I thought it through, I just said, well, let's just do his life. It reminded me of F.B. Meyer, who I'll quote a little bit later. 
Uh, He has a two-volume book called Great Men of the Bible. And of course, John the Baptist is in there. So this morning, we're going to look at his birth, number one. Number two, we'll look at his ministry. Number three, yeah, he was the greatest, but he was also a man. We'll look at his doubt. And number four, we'll look at his last recorded words that he said. And finally, number five, we'll actually take a look at how John the Baptist died and met his end. To start out with, I'd like to turn to the very last chapter of the Bible and the very last two verses, the book of Malachi, chapter 4. One we go to often, I have questions in the back of my mind how the Lord is going to tie together Elijah and John the Baptist. But the last two verses of the Old Testament read this, chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the father to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come to strike the earth with a curse. And at last verse, God did not speak again through a prophet for the next 400 years. I just want that to settle in. God doesn't speak through the prophets for 400 years. Just think of the length of time from our own country. And now, nothing. No prophet speaking, no revelation. We have events that took place with Israel, of course. We had the Maccabean revolt. And um, that was about 164 D.C. That's where Hanukkah comes from. But uh, that's not contained in the scriptures. But it is a part of history. So we have this silent period, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, now we'll look at uh, his birth, because out of nowhere, there's going to come a voice. So let's turn, number one, look at John the Baptist's birth. We have to go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, picking it up in verse 11, and we have an angel appearing to Zacharias. Let's pick it up. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, the way they worked this in Israel is sort of on a rotation basis. For a couple of weeks, if you were of the tribe of Levi, you would have your time to go in and serve in the temple. Well, what would you do? They had to continually put oil for the lamp. Uh, The showbread would have continually been changed. It would have been the morning, evening prayers with the incense. All these things needed tending. And so on this rotation basis, it was... uh, Zacharias's turn, and while he's in there performing his task, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Again, without exception, every time an angel shows up on the scene, people are frightened. But the angel said to him, whatever angel says when he appears, don't be afraid, Zacharias. For your prayer is heard, for your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 
he will also go before him, now notice this, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now God hasn't spoken in 400 years. The last thing he says, and part of this is fulfilled here, but Jesus later is going to explain um, the difference between John the Baptist and Elijah, uh, who, who has come but who's coming again. But clearly, as God is going to speak again, the angel announces John is going to have the Holy Spirit on him, even in his mother's womb. And then uh, he will fulfill part of turning the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children back to the father. He's, he's the messenger that Isaiah talked about. So here, let's look at his birth. We'll jump over to 57. What we're missing in between is Gabriel appearing to Mary and tell her she's going to be the one. And it's the reason we sang that song this morning, My Soul Magnifies the Lord. Such a beautiful song. That's in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. Well, that's the reason we sang that beautiful song this morning. But Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and it was immediate recognition of, um, of John in the womb, conscious where he leaped when Mary showed up. But as far as the birth goes, in verse 57, let's pick it up there. Now, Elizabeth full-time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had showed great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. I should fill in that John began, Zacharias began to go through this whole routine. Look, I'm old. My wife is old. We can't have kids. And um, we find here the angel um, announces who he is. He says, look, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. You think I'm lying to you? That was the idea. So he says, just because you've challenged the Lord, you're not going to be speaking for a while. And he was dumb. He came out and made signs and did things, but he couldn't talk. So... As uh, the word is out, everybody begins to rejoice. And so verse 59, on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, they would have called him by his father's name, Zacharias. And his mother answered and says, no, he's going to be called John. But they said to her, well, there's nobody in your relatives who's called John. So they made signs to his father, because he still can't talk. Uh, what he should be called. And he he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all marveled. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he was praising God. And then fear came on all those who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hills of Judah. And all of those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And so um, we have the birth. We have the Holy Spirit with him. We have a miracle occurring where John's father is 
um, dumb as far as not being able to speak and the miracle of his tongue being loosed again to speak. So he grows, and he's actually related to um, Zacharias. Jesus, there's, um, they actually were cousins. So let's look at number two, his ministry. We need to go to the Gospel of John chapter 1. And we'll begin to look at John's ministry. Pick it up with verse 19. John's unique, and it doesn't give a genealogy. I've said it many times. John is only interested in seven miracles and seven I am statements. And the main thing that he wants to persuade people of is that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so in verse 19, the beginning of John's ministry, now this is a testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed and said, I'm not the Christ. He spoke like the Messiah, but he spoke with such authority. And when they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask that question? They asked the question because it was the last thing the recorded scriptures had to say in the Old Testament. I'm going to send Elijah, and he's going to do what you're doing, turning people back to the Lord, calling for repentance. So that's first on the list. Hey, are you Elijah? And he answered and says, no, I'm not. Now, this is going to counterdict what Jesus is going to say about John. So like when I say I have questions in my head on the filing cabinet about more information, um, again, I'll develop that thought a little bit farther as we go along. But he says, no, I'm not Elijah. Well, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, well, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? And what do you say about yourself? And he says, all right. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, fulfilling Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, our text this morning. You want to know who I am? I'm just a voice. I'm crying in the wilderness. Now my place called Beth Barra, just, just a little east of uh, where Jericho is. And so on these verses 19, let's pick it up, read a little bit further. Um, as the prophet Isaiah said, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you're not to Christ? nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered, saying, Well, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who's coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not even worthy to loose. Now these things were done in Bethbara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. I was talking with my friend Joyce, uh, she's a tour agent that we're using for our next trip to Israel. And she says, Dwight, they just opened up a site. Uh, it's Beth Barra. Now, we usually either do baptisms when we go to Israel, way up um, where the Galilee comes, uh, Jordan comes out of the Galilee, uh, just down not even a quarter of a mile, or a beautiful spot called Sakni. And she says, what people are starting to do, they just put a building up at Beth Barra. So, 
when we go to Israel, um, uh, this next time we're actually going to stop. I've never never been there, but they put up a place down where you can change your clothes and and that sort of stuff. And she says, "Do you want to go?" And I said, "Absolutely, I want to go." And um, so Bethabar, we know where the spot is. It's just north of uh, the Dead Sea and just east of Jericho. And then it says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, and this is what he was born for, these words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said after me uh, comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now we're talking about his eternal deity. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen it, and I testify that this is the Son of God. John didn't know. He didn't know until this moment. Um, As he saw the Spirit descending from heaven, he was told, this is how you're going to know, John. The Holy Spirit's going to come like a dove and light upon. And in another verse, we read where it says, this is my beloved Son, voice speaking from heaven and in the Gospels. So what was John's ministry? Um, We read here in verse 34, to testify. I'll say this a couple times this morning. He is the greatest man who ever lived, but he never did one miracle. And yet he was the greatest man um, who ever lived. Let's go to um, uh, Matthew chapter 11 at this time where Jesus calls him the greatest man who ever lived. He'll give us a little bit of, of his background and um, his style, his clothing, his dress was very much like Elijah. Uh, long, Both of them were under the vow of what we'd call a Nazarite. They were forbidden to um, drink wine, eat grapes, uh, certain dietary laws, can't cut your hair. And that was Elijah. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was a woolly guy, hairy guy. And uh, as we look at Matthew chapter 11, picking it up in verse 2, he's, he uh, has fulfilled his ministry. He lived in, in a place, I believe, very close to Qumran and probably lived there when we go and visit Qumran they go as far to say that they believe John actually was there. He was part of the, the colony that was there, and what they did is they left Jerusalem because they thought it was too worldly. They came down to Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, were found. And they, this is where it's very, very close to Beth Bara, so it, it does make sense. But anyway, he has fulfilled his ministry, and... We read here in verse 2, and this is number 3 now, even though Jesus is going to call him the greatest, he's still a man. 
And we read in verse 2, And John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. He's been incarcerated by Herod at this time. He says, are you the coming one or we look for another? And first time I read that, I said, say what? (laughs) Say what? John, you're asking this question? Greatest man who ever lived, your whole job was to, to acknowledge this, there he is. And now... He's doubting. I remember um, doing an interview one time, and uh, uh, it was a top 10 list of questions. They were interviewing pastors. We all had to answer the same question. This was one of them. Do you ever doubt? And I said, well, yeah. And they said, you do, but you're a pastor. (laughs) And I said, what about John the Baptist? What about the disciples? Jesus rebuked them instead of encouraged them when he spoke to the wind and the sea and said, peace be still. And instead of comforting the guys, oh, well, it's good thing you guys called out for help because you might have been goners for sure. No. He says, where's your faith? You see, they were doubting. The Lord says, we're getting in the boat. We're going to the other side. Do you think anything is going to stop that from happening? No storm. Jesus is in the boat. You don't have to worry about a thing. And we need to remind ourselves about that and because um, you are going to doubt. Lord, why is this happening to me? And when you're going through that, and then you, I call it going through a trial for going through a trial. That's what I call it. I know better. I know better than to doubt. I know better than to fear. And so I go through a trial for going through a trial. Are you, are you with me on that one? I know better. And here, the greatest man who ever lived is sending, and um, he, he wants to know, he's sending his disciples, and he says, go and tell John the things that you hear and see. So now Jesus has got the message, and he's sending the boys back to John. He says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he adds this little zinger, in verse 6, where he says, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And I read this. Let's keep reading. I'll come back to it. I want to go to verse 15. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are wearing soft clothing, they live in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and even more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. Now he, Jesus is going to quote Isaiah. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And not only is it in Isaiah, but it's also in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Again, quoting prophecy. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So here's the greatest man who ever lived. Jesus says so. And he says, yet he is going to have a place of lesser prominence than you and I. Because he is the last of the Old Testament prophets 
And Israel has a place, but the bride of Christ even has a more unique and special place. So you could, the Lord says the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the Old Testament prophets. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And then he says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffered violence and the violent, violent will take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He's the last one. Now this, this verse here. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, remember when they asked him, hey, are you Elijah? What did he say? No. And yet here he says, if you guys can understand this, I'm telling you who, he is Elijah who is to come. Future tense. And Elijah, therefore, John the Baptist is not the full fulfillment of the last two verses of the Bible where it says, I'm going to send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's sort of a double prophecy. And where John denies it and says, no, I'm not, Jesus says, if you can grasp it, then I'm telling you he is to come. The spirit that was upon Elijah is the same spirit that was on John the Baptist. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Interesting verse. Now, let's get back to um, John's doubt. The months in prison, why am I here? Called, I know you called me the, the greatest man that ever lived. Why am I going through this? And he has this time of questioning and doubt. And what sealed it for John is not the fact that he was doing the miracles. He knew all that. But he told John something that nobody else knew. It would have been personal between John and Jesus. And that is this. And blessed is anyone, let's go back and read it. Um, Verse six, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What? John the Baptist would be offended by Jesus? Well, this hit him right in the heart. I mean, this was a zinger because he was offended. And I'll tell you why he was offended. Look down at verses 18 and 19. Remember John's ministry. He lived out in the wilderness, um, a strict diet, strict clothing material. He had one job, telling people to repent and get their act together. But we read in verse 18, John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. Um, The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, he's a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. I'm thinking, and I can't prove this, but the offense for John was, if Jesus, if you're you're the son of God, what are you doing hanging out with um, people of questionable nature and character, sinners? Uh, Jesus' message or John's message was straightforward, that of repentance, and he was strict. And it offended him that Jesus, it says in Luke 15, 1, uh, 
then drew unto him all the publicans and sinners to hear him. It was just something about the authority in which Jesus spoke, that the average person, and, and we all know that we're all sinners. Somebody want to say amen at this point? So we all are, except um, some people know it and some people don't. But even the sinner was captivated. It said the common person heard Jesus gladly. Oh, I wouldn't give. To hear just one time Jesus give a Bible study. Wouldn't you love to hear that? The thing is, we're going to someday. We read, and instead of um, the harsh judgment, I think about the woman caught in the act of adultery and how he dealt with the self-righteous Pharisees, um, got rid of them. He says, all right, go ahead, stoner. Well, one, one condition, you've got to be without sin. So if you've never sinned, then you can stone her. And so they all split, they're gone. And um, did I really say split? I haven't said split since the 60s, I don't think. All right. When Jesus had lifted up himself and he saw none but the woman, so they're all gone now. He said unto her, woman, where where are your accusers? Has no man condemned thee? Well, that that was John's style. You guys need to repent. Get track together, do what's right. And she said, no man, Lord, And that Lord meant there was a change in that woman's heart. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. He was a friend of the sinners. Oh, he didn't condone the sin. He says, you can't do that anymore. If you're going to live for me, you can't be an adulterer, period. So he's not condoning sin, but he's not the sharp voice of of John the Baptist. So when you go back to that verse of John being convicted and the Lord telling, blessed is he who's not ashamed of me, John, or offended by the way I do things with people. And he was. And the Lord called him out on it. And that was enough because only God knew that. And so as far as John's concerned, everything's fine. Yeah, it's the Lord. Only God knows that. If you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah to come. All right. Uh, Let's turn to Matthew chapter 17 just a couple pages farther because Elijah now is going to show up. And so in chapter 17, we have Peter, James, and John, the Lord taking them to a, a mountain. We don't know which one it is. doesn't say, just as a high mountain. And there he's transfigured before them. His clothes begin to glow, become as white as light. Verse 3, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared and were talking with them. Say what? There's two people in the Old Testament that never saw death. And one of them was Elijah, remember? Elisha, his apprentice, he says, when I go, when the Lord takes me, what do you want? He says, I want double what you got. Oh, you don't know what you're asking, Elisha. He says, but I tell you what, if you see the Lord take me and you're there when it happens, then you're going to get your prayer request and they just went a little bit farther down the road and all of a sudden he's caught up in a chariot and Elijah sees the whole thing and uh, he never saw a death there was one other man in the Bible who never saw a death and that was Enoch and says he was 365 just a young guy (laughs) 
and he walked with God and was not because God took him. So he didn't die, and Elijah didn't die. And um, here's a good trivia question for you um, for the supper table. If Methuselah is the oldest man who ever lived, how is it that he died before his father? Everybody hear the, the question? If Methuselah is the oldest man who ever lived, how is it that Methuselah died before his father? His father knew Adam? Wrong. Adam, his father was Enoch. He never died. All right, look it up. (laughs) Enoch was the father of Methuselah. He never died, therefore Methuselah, the... uh, I'll just forget it. (laughs) We'll go on to the next one. Um, Here we find Elijah, who never died, and Moses. What's this all about? I like to call it sort of a staff meeting of Elijah still coming in the future. Let's pick it up in verse 10, because after this whole thing is over, Peter, James, and John have questions. And his disciples ask him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly is coming. Now notice it's in the future tense, implying he hasn't come yet. He is coming. And he will restore all things. Well, but I say to you that Elijah has come already, but they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at his hands also. He's talking about his death. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. But what I want you to see here is that he says, why did the prophet say that Elijah must come? And he says, oh, he is coming. He's not here yet. So if he isn't coming, when is he coming? And the answer to that, you need to talk Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Elijah is coming, future tense. In in Revelation 11, Elijah is coming, future tense. Elijah has come, John the Baptist. Revelation 11, picking up in verse 3. I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth. Now that's John the Baptist. That's Elijah. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of all the earth. Here's a prophecy that was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 4 that's being fulfilled here in Revelation 11. If anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Now these two guys have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. The same Elijah did the same thing with Ahab. He said, it's not going to rain until I say so. What's interesting is it was exactly the same period of time. James and Jesus tell us that it was for three and a half years it didn't rain. And now we have the same Elijah, who never died, shows up again, and for the first half of the great tribulation period, they're going to do whatever they want to. The idea of the two olive trees. Remember I told you earlier that 
Zacharias' duty was to go in and keep oil in the lamps? Well, the picture here is like pipes going right into the olive tree so that it's a continual flow, of, which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, so that they will have a continual flow of the Spirit and they will be able to do whatever they want, whenever they want. And they bring great judgments, no rain for three and a half years, turns water into blood, sounds like Moses to me. And to strike the earth uh, with all plagues as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. They'll be killed in that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Gomorrah, where our Lord was crucified, namely Jerusalem. And um, verse 11 says the world throws a party. They allowed their bodies to lay open in the streets of, of Jerusalem. And in verse 11, after three and a half days, interesting, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet in great fear stood those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. The whole world is watching us. And if, you're, if they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, think about it. And they were. This happens, here's, here's the order of events. Pretty soon the Lord is going to take his church home and we're out of here. The fullness of the Gentiles will have come in. And in a sense, that witness will be taken away. But immediately who shows up for the next three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period is Moses and Elijah. And um, then they're taken out after three and a half years. But then if you just turn a couple chapters, the Lord always leaves a witness. Chapter 14, we have an angel now preaching the gospel. Verse 6, look at it. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. I believe this is a fulfillment when Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached unto all the world and then the end will come. I don't care how great the mission organization is. At this time, there still will be people who have not heard the gospel. But this fulfills it right here. Now, I'm just a human being, but if I hear an angel flying around preaching the gospel, I'm getting saved. So anyone want to say amen to that? I mean, Moses and Elijah, there was a lot of people that got saved during that period of time. 144,000 Jewish Jewish, uh, men will be evangelizing. So we will have, people will, the the tribulation gang is, is sort of like a melting pot where you're pressured. You have no choice. It's either you're, you're going to be for me or against me. No middle ground. None of this, well, I'll think about it and someday I might. No, you either take the mark of the beast or you die. And so it's a culmination of God dealing with planet Earth and everyone is going to have to choose. This morning, if you're hearing the gospel and uh, you can kick the can down the road a little bit farther and say, yeah, but maybe someday I should do that. Right now, you know, I'm sort of having a good time doing what I'm doing and Maybe I will, maybe I won't. And there's that attitude that's out there. But when the gospel is really presented, we need to know there is no 
you have no choice. If you say no, maybe someday, you're saying no. Somebody want to say amen to that? Yeah, that's what you're saying. John 3 comes in too. People don't come to the light because they love the darkness rather than the light. Because they'll have to stop doing some of their evil deeds and people just simply don't want to do that. All right, let's go back and uh, look at number four. The last recorded words of John. We need to go to the Gospel of John chapter three. John three. Probably the most famous chapter in the Bible. Because it's here that we're told you must be born again. There are three musts in this chapter. The first one is in verse 7 where Jesus is talking to a religious man, a good man, rich man. He was troubled because there was something about this Jesus that was gnawing at him, keeping him awake at night. He comes to the Lord by night and he says, I know you're from God. Nobody could do what you're doing unless God is with him. And again, just like Jesus knew John the Baptist, he knew Nick. He knew exactly where Nicodemus was coming from. And he knew exactly what he had to do. So he tells him in verse 7, he said, Nicodemus, don't marvel. You must be born again. So when people ask me, why do you say, I got to be born again? I say, because Jesus said, you must be born again. Amen? You must be born again, period. And uh, that which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. And you're not going to get any of this stuff that I'm reading until you're born again. The natural man doesn't get it. He scratches his head uh, when he looks at a born-again believer. He can't understand it until you yourself are born of the spirit. I used to call Christian those people. You know, those people. And uh, now I am one of those people. (laughs) So that's the first must. The second must here is in verse 14. Nicodemus is a scholar. He would have known the story of Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Children of Israel were moaning and complaining about the manna from heaven being thirsty from time to time, always complaining, always murmuring. And so the Lord raised up snakes and allowed them to go in and bite people, and some of the people started to die. Got their attention. Oh, Moses, would you pray for us, please? Uh, And Moses did. And the Lord said, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a bronze pole, put a bronze serpent up on it, a snake, and tell the people, whoever looks at the snake will be healed. And he goes back with that message, and I imagine it had this sort of result. Really? Okay. I'm, where, where is it? And you see people going and, and looking at it, and, and they're healed. And some people say, how dumb do you think I am? Looking at a, a, a serpent on a snake? I'm dying here. I need help. I don't need to look at some snake up on a pole. But it was a, an image that Jesus is using to get through to Nicodemus. He understood verse 14 where it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man 
be lifted up. He must be. Last week we talked about Gethsemane. Father, if there's any other way, except I go up on that stick, then that's what I want. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. There was no other way. So it must happen. And um, I know that Nicodemus got saved. I don't know if it was this night, but him and Joseph of Arimathea were involved with taking down the body. They were secret closet Christians in those days. The last must we read is in verse 28 through 30, and these are the final words that we have recorded of John the Baptist. So let's pick it up in verse 28. Um, This is John talking. He said, you yourself bear witness that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. So he's talking about you and I. We're the bride, and we have the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Here John is acknowledging the difference between the bride of Christ and the the friend of the bridegroom. And then he says this, and here's two musts. He must increase, and I must decrease. Some of the wisest words of uh, discipleship in your walk as the Lord changes us is this absolute necessity. We have the greatest man in the world saying, look, I have to decrease, but he must increase. And we have these three musts in John chapter 3. Well, John died, and for that we need to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. So let's turn back there as we go through John's life this morning. Mark chapter 6, verse 17. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. Herod was throwing this party Um, we read in verse 17 here we'll read through 29 for Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother Philip's wife for he had married her for John had said to Herod it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him but she could not. For Herod feared John because he was a just and a holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles and his high officers and chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced... And please, Herod, and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask whatever you want. I will give it to you. I imagine it was very seductive. And um, uh, it pleased Herod so much. He says, whatever you want, Gail, you got it. And he swore to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you up to half of my kingdom. That had to be quite a dance. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? 
And without missing a beat, she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked him, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sore because of the oath and because of those who were with him. He did not want to refuse her. Didn't want her to do it. Gave his word in front of all these people. And they're watching him. What's he going to do? And he uh, was a people pleaser. And instead of doing the right thing, he allows it. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went in and beheaded him in prison. And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to his mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in the tomb. I'm a fan of a man named F.B. Meyer. I've used his resources many times over the years. He has a two-volume book called Great Men of the Bible. And he takes the liberty of putting himself in John the Baptist's shoes during this moment. And what I'm about to read is a paragraph from his book, Great Men of the Bible, F.B. Meyer. It says that he went and beheaded him in prison. Had the Baptists heard any of the unseemly revelry? Perhaps so. Those old castles are full of strange echoes. His cell was perfectly dark. Was his mind glancing back on those never-to-be-forgotten days when the heaven was opened above him and he saw the descending dove? Was he wondering why he was allowed to lie there month after month Silent and suffering, ah, he did not know how near he was to liberty. There was a tread along the corridor. It stopped outside his cell. The light gleamed under the door. The heavy wards of the lock were turned. In a moment more, he saw the gleaming of the naked sword and guessed the soldier's errand. There was no time to spare. The royal message was urgent. Perhaps one last message was sent to his disciples That he bowed his head before the stroke, the body fell helplessly there, the head there, and the spirit was free. Forerunner of the bridegroom here, he was forerunner there also, and the bridegroom's friend passed homeward to await the bridegroom's coming where he will ever hear the voice he loves. F.B. Meyer. The greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus, was John the Baptist. Yet he never did any miracles. And so as you think of your own life, you say, I've never seen a miracle, I've never done a miracle. Well, you're in good company. Greatest man who ever lived never did a miracle, not one. Um, Yet, he is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40 as we make our way through the Bible. Verse 3 is this man's life that is fulfilled in our study this morning. What was he? He's just a voice, pointing people to Jesus, realizing he must decrease, and Jesus had to increase more and more. I want to close this morning by looking here in Mark. Just turn the page to Mark chapter 9. Let's see if we can glean an application Put a little spiritual meat in our bones this morning as as we study God's word. Mark 
Let me preface this by saying it's, it's not wrong to want to be great, okay? It's not wrong wanting to be great unless it's with an attitude of pride. And as I thought about this, I thought, what would be a good example of, of uh, somebody who, who says they were great but it's all just full of themselves? And I couldn't help but think of Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest. I float like a butterfly and I sting like a bee. Nobody is greater than me. You know, I was always talking that trash talk. I am the greatest. And then I thought, well, on a serious note, who would I pick? If I think of all the people who would, who would ever live. I was bouncing this off Judy and... and um, we both kind of thought, well, what about Abraham Lincoln? And then I thought, well, that's kind of ironic. Here you got a bad example, and the guy's name just happens to be Mohammed. Okay? And then I thought, I really think Abraham Lincoln was one of the greatest men who ever lived. But the irony is his name is Abraham, <laughs> friend of God. He was the 16th president of the United States. He abolished slavery. He led our country through the Civil War, deadliest war in our history. And he was a great man, and he is honored, and I believe rightly so. The Bible says, let another man honor you. Don't honor yourself. Um, If somebody says something nice about you, be gracious, be humble. Say, well, thank you very much. But in the back of your head, saying, Lord, all the glory goes to you. Amen on that one? You You can be gracious and say, well, thanks a lot. But... Praise the Lord. Lord, I know who it is, and you get all the praise and you get all the glory. So the question came up. You know, the disciples were, this was a tit-for-tat thing going on with the disciples. And they were arguing who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. James and John are going at it, you know. And they actually put mom up to going to ask the Lord, Lord, when you come into your kingdom now, can John sit on his side and James on the other side? And the Lord just said, It's not for me to give. But he does address the issue. He addresses it in Mark chapter 9, and uh, looking at verse 33, he came to Capernaum, where he was in a house, and he asked them what they were disputing amongst themselves on the road. But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed about themselves who would be the greatest And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone desires to be first, okay, it's not wrong to to want to have a high position when you get to heaven. Nothing wrong with that. But he must be last of all and servant of all. You want to be great? Okay, well then you look around and you say, Lord, what needs to be done? Just an example, we got to, a thing that we're just throwing out because it's a change of seasons. And um, if you're saying, Lord, what can I do? This, this study ministered to me. I want to I get more involved. I want to I decrease and I want to become, I want you to increase more. What can I do? It's not your ability, it's your availability. Can I say that again? It's not your ability, it's your availability. Are you just willing? So in little things like we need help in a Sunday school, be willing. Need uh, help on the yard crew, be willing. Uh, you'd make the time for something else. Do it for the, for the, the, the sake of the kingdom. 
Take the advice of the greatest man who ever lived, John the Baptist, and understand if you're going to walk with the Lord, I must decrease and he must increase. And then he said in verse 35 here, I'll quote it in closing this morning. He sat down in the 12, he says, if any man wants to be first, the same will be last of all, and he'll be the servant of all. Amen? Why don't we stand this morning and allow God's word to sink into our heart as we pray. Lord, we do pray that your Holy Spirit now, as we make our way through the scriptures, simply going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Lord, as we see another prophecy fulfilled, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, about John the Baptist and his story, his life, the glory to be able to be the person born to point to the one who would give us eternal life. And yet in his humanness, Lord, he was still a man, went through times of difficulty and doubt. In closing this morning, I pray for anybody that's in that place right now. And Lord, just let him hold on to your promise. You'll never leave him or forsake him. But I also pray for any Lord here or watching over the internet that they have been kicking the can down the road, putting it off, making that commitment and that decision where they must be born again. And you and the Holy Spirit are such a gentleman. You never twist, you never connive. You simply present truth and you leave the ball in our court. I pray today would be the time for some to finally make that decision. Okay, Lord, I'm yours. And I pray that as your word says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.